All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. Have you wondered if you want to force fetch your dog? Maybe you think your dog's too soft. Maybe you're too nervous to screw, quote unquote, screw your dog up. Let me help you. I built a start to finish course with different dogs, different breeds, and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy. Jump in, links in the description. We'd be happy to help you. Let's go. Let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season. Welcome to Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles, episode 28. I'm here sitting in the room with Kevin uh, and two bush lights while Ethan and, and his seven-month-old son are driving, and they do, not have any, they do not have any bush lights available to them. He may have a bottle, but, but no bush light. How you doing, no Ethan? Welcome light. to the show, man. Hey, I am doing great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Cool, man. So Ethan is from Standing Stone Kennels. Um, he is primarily a, a pointer upland trainer. He does obedience work and he does some retriever work. And we're excited to have him on board. We've gotten a ton of great questions from our Instagram listeners or followers on helping them get their pointer ready for hunting season. Ethan's going to talk about his business and a little bit about how we can work our dogs. Ethan, do me a solid. Give everybody a little background. How did you get into this? Um, you know, a little bit different than most maybe. Um, grew up in a family with one dog and she ended up dying pretty young in my childhood, and my parents didn't really want to have any other dogs, so spent most of that time dogless. Uh, got the opportunity to hunt with my uncle and grandpa a little bit, and in that situation, they had dogs. Most of the time, they were more meat dogs, usually not even purebreds, you know, something like a Pointer Brittany Cross or a, I think, a short hair lab cross or something um, all my dog my grandpa's dog's names were pretty much Queenie so it's hard to keep track which was which but <laughs> Wait, hang on he named <laughs> yeah. he named all the dogs the same name <laughs> pretty much most of them I mean I don't I don't think every single one but all I remember remember talking about was Queenie and it seemed like 
sometimes Queenie was the short hair lab cross and sometimes Queenie was a, a purebred pointer and sometimes Queenie was, you know, I don't know. It's just always something different. But It's like George Foreman and all his kids named George Foreman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, see, me, we can't recycle names. We can't recycle names. It gets too dang confusing. That's right. Dude, some of the best stories that we've heard on this podcast are people's first experiences with dogs and a lot of them were quote-unquote meat dogs a lot of them were mixed breeds that yeah. you know could go and rustle up a grouse or or would swim and bring a duck back to shore and maybe didn't have that refined skill set that you and I and Kevin and we all kind of strive for now but the memories and the stories of those dogs like live on absolutely absolutely they do so do you remember so, when that light bulb kind of clicked that you watched those dogs work and you're like i want to do this or i got to have my own yeah it was um probably mid high school and this was actually went with a buddy i uh it was one situation I say, buddy, it was kind of a friend of the family that took me. So it was an older guy that knew my parents and knew I had an interest in it, even though my parents didn't really. And um, spent a lot of time with dogs that really didn't know anything. And then it was like one time this dog finally we caught it or got it back to hunting with us. And it pushed a bird up in front of me and I shot it and it went and picked it up, brought it back. You know, it was like the whole day was garbage except for that one moment of about a three minute span. And I was like, man, this would be really cool to do someday if the dog listened about a thousand times better than this one does. So I said, you know, I want a dog. And my wife, uh, Kat, who's a huge part of my business and everything that we do today, um, she was on board with that, so when we got married in college and everything else, we decided to get a short hair. What was the first now, bird that you shot over that dog? It was a pheasant. Ringneck pheasant, southwestern Iowa. Now, I, I'm sorry that I forget, but where are you guys from? Where's your kennel? Kansas. We are in, we are in south central Kansas. Just northwest of Wichita. I thought that. So you were in Iowa hunting? Yeah, I used uh, used to live in Iowa. Um, I, <laughs> there he is. There he is. He wants his bush um, light. Yes. Uh, yeah, I moved around a lot growing up. So I lived a lot in the Midwest, upper Midwest, everywhere from North Dakota to Texas. So it's... I have several stories from different, lots of different areas, but. That's really cool. That's really cool. So you and your wife are, you said you were in college? Yep. And I worked for the Geek Squad. I have a lot of background in technology and I was working my way through college, fixing computers, driving the bug. And I went out to a guy's place to set up a new computer, and he was a bird dog trainer. Uh, guy ran pointers, ran a bunch of field trials. And I was, at that point, I was talking with my wife. We were getting to the point where we were getting ready to buy a house. And 
we decided we wanted to get a dog about the same time. And so I was asking this guy, you know, just kind of seeing what he had to say because we were trying to figure out what breed. And I was looking at Weimariners and other things that, you know, and Pointers and Britneys because those are kind of the things that I'd seen growing up. And um, he said, based on what you're talking about, he said, I really think you should look at short hairs. And I didn't even know that was really a thing at the time. I didn't even know what that breed was. And so I did the first thing that you should do when you're looking for a new dog. You know, I looked up pictures of them on the internet and fell in love. Just loved the ticking, loved the colorations, loved the build, just the overall presence that that dog presented in the pictures that I saw. So my wife and I decided, you know, that we had similar feelings on the way that they looked and thought that that was the cool thing to do. So we looked in the newspaper and found an advertisement for a short hair puppy for a litter. They had puppies available for 200 bucks. And we drove out and in the car on the way out there, I told my wife, I said, hey, if they don't have the pretty ticking and the, you know, the liver head and all of these things, we're not, we're not even gonna look at them, you know, which is knowing now, it's all the things that I coach people not to do when they're going to look at buying a new dog but we did every single one of them the wrong way. So we get out there and this lady doesn't even have papers for the dogs. I think they were registered with CKC or something like the, I don't, I don't wanna say puppy mill, but it seems like those are the kind of people that are typically utilizing this registry, um, looking back at it now, but we got that and this dog. <laughs> there you go. And that's what that's what pretty much began all of it. I went uh, into it with the idea that if you put enough time in, you can train anything and found out very quickly that I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> what was it? Was it a boy or girl? It's a little female. We named her Sammy. And I lovingly referred to her as Crazy Sammy on a regular basis. Um, because that's... Very was. accurate description of what she was. <laughs> is Sammy still around? Um, Sammy is not still around. She is... We ended up moving her along to a family that wanted a good bird dog to take their son hunting who had... I think congestive heart failure and was struggling through that and loved to bird hunt but couldn't keep up with the labs that his dad had so they wanted a bird dog and we were kind of making a transition at the point that she ended up moving on to realizing how much that dog should not be bred and should not pass on genetics and should not and would not continue in the path in which we decided to go. And so we found an extremely good home for her. And she's still alive today, but, um, you know, I haven't seen her in a long time. I got gotcha. you. Boy, that's uh, – I, I don't even know where to go with that. But I think, you know, <laughs> seeing where your business has grown to, that's probably the most responsible thing you could have done where probably other people would have probably bred her or, you know, it. I think a lot of people – who have one or two dogs have a hard time understanding guys like us who can sell them or yeah. or rehome them if they don't 
suit what we need. And yeah. um, I guess maybe we could dive into like that decision uh, as hard as it may be or it is um, not fun to maybe talk about. But what what was it like to have to make that decision? Your first bird dog that you got and you trained and you, you guys were making life choices and you what was it like? So there's kind of a little backstory that goes into that, I think probably to tell that story the best way. Um, in the process of not having any idea what I was doing, I went to every book, every video, everything that I could find resource-wise, and being a tech guy, you know, a lot of in our generation, I went to the internet. Well, when we started looking at that, there was really nothing out there. Um, I found some some videos online of a guy trying to sell a dog, and you know he's telling it hunted up around in a circle in the yard, and it just, just was there wasn't quality content like there is today, you know, and um, and then I found one individual group that had some videos, and the content was good. It was real content that showed training sessions and how things worked and how they worked through things. It wasn't just either nothing or here's a perfect dog, let me demo what it looks like for a dog to sit and then fetch a bumper, you know, see, that's how you do it. So um, I reached out to them and said, hey, I uh, could use a little bit of help with this dog and I feel like I could maybe help you with just the quality of the videos that you're putting out. And they were interested in that. That turned into a full-time job of helping them through that and they were a, a, a short hair kennel, so they had short hairs there, and I ended up buying a short hair from them um, that was, you know, night and day difference in confirmation and trainability and natural ability and all of the things. And it really brought to light what I had, though, although being my first dog and the direction that we could go with the dogs in the future. So. Cool. Yeah, so from my perspective, you know, just to give people a little insight, like we've, first of all, it's part of my business plan is to buy a dog, you know, at a relatively young age, six months to a year, train it, and then sell it to someone and make a little bit of a profit. And then yeah. you're giving them a dog that's already housebroken, crate trained, not jumping, and ready to hunt versus going through the whole puppy process. And um, so for, for sure. some for some people, that started dog or finished level, seasoned level dog is the right move for them and their family. And so it's been a, a nice way for me to supplement income and grow the business and, and the brand by buying and selling dogs. And then I've also bought dogs that I, I thought I was going to keep. Um, yeah. I would say probably six months or eight months ago, I bought a dog named Piper. Phenomenal pedigree. Everything was good on paper. But she wasn't what I wanted. She, she was way too high strung for what I wanted to produce for people um, as far as, like, lone duck puppies. She was Absolutely. a phenomenal dog. And I sold her to a guy who's going to run high-level field trial hunt tests. But there was this ounce of, like, crackhead. <laughs> and she just was a little nutty. And if yeah. I produced puppies that were that wired 
than the homeowner with three kids under seven years old with a wild, you know, bouncing off the wall Labrador probably wouldn't be super happy with me. So, well, see, it's not fair to the dog. It's not fair to the family. Right. It's it's not the right situation. There's the right dog for every family, and there's the right family for every dog. Exactly. You just got to find them. And so for, for me and what I want to produce for people, a more, like, in the field, I want to be as high-charged and ready to rock and capable of the high levels. But in the house, I need them to be... They, they need that off switch that everybody talks about and refers to. Yep. And Piper had zero off switch. <laughs> so, you know, it, as tough as it was, we found her a home and she's doing phenomenal now and they love her to death. But that's what they Absolutely. wanted. It's just not what we wanted to produce. So, you know, it's not. Well, I'm a. F- go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I just, I'm a firm believer that everything is genetic. Now, not everything is passed on to every single puppy, but if it's there in mom and dad, it's going to be in some of the puppies, if not a majority, based on how line bred that dog is or, you know, some other things that are driving that. We look at a lot at the genetics when we, you know, when we're picking males and females and how that's going to play a role in what they're going to be able to throw and produce. Sure. But everything is genetic so if you're seeing that out of that dog it's going to come out into the puppies exactly and and actually in one of our previous podcasts we interviewed barton ramsey from southern oak and yeah. one of the things that he commented on and, and i agree with is if mom is a five and dad is a 10 you're not going to get that beautiful eight you're going to get no, you're going to get fives and tens you're going to get fives and tens and maybe one or two eights so you've got to yep. breed, you know, those eights to tens, and you're going to get eights and tens. So that's kind of what, what our program is revolving around. But, you know, I definitely feel for you for having to make that life choice and saying, like, hey, she's going to be better off with this family, and, you know, we're going to move in this direction and grow. Um, yeah, and I don't want to sound heartless. I mean, there were tears. <laughs> he, it, it was the first, and it was the hardest. Uh but to see where she was going makes that so much easier. It's not like I just picked some random person that signed a check and went through in her kennel somewhere. This was a family. Yeah, I got pictures of her laying on the couch with, and sleeping with the kid, and you know all of that stuff uh, was very, very important in the decision of making. You know that decision we made of where she was going to go, and um, especially for the fact that we wanted it to be her, her you know forever home she didn't need to bounce around anymore right and i know she's getting as much if not more love than we could have ever even given her so yeah it's uh that makes it a lot easier but it was i didn't want to come off too heartless because it it there were there were tears (laughs) they were real and uh it was hard yeah i know and again that's it's the same for me man absolutely same for me some of them are harder than others um, but it's a yes. part of the process. It's a part of the game. And uh, so I feel you. So you get this new dog um, from the guy who you did some IT work for and, and developed you know, his program. When did Standing Stone Kennels develop, and how did you grow it? Yep. Uh, so Standing Stone Kennels kind of came around almost as an accident. Um, 
We wanted uh, the opportunity to move from there where, where I was working at the kennel um, down closer to my family, which is in the Kansas area. And my uncle called me and he runs a few grocery stores. And he called me and said, hey, I'm opening up a new store, I'm buying a new store, and I want you to manage the, the main store while I get the new store running. And it was gonna be good money. And I said, well, it sounds like a great opportunity. You know, I love dogs and everything else, but I'm moving down into pheasant country and everything else. We'll be able to hunt our dogs and do that still. Um, just won't be training dogs full time. And when we moved, it wasn't even three months later that Kat and I got an overwhelming number of phone calls, emails. People finally found where we ended up and said, wait, 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 we want you guys to continue training our dogs. So we started Standing Stone Kennels and we, um, as of, I think July, June 1st, my wife's sitting here with me, she's the good one with the dates. June 1st, we are celebrating seven full years in business, so. Congratulations, that's awesome. Thank you, yeah. That's really, really cool. And Aiden's, Aiden's really happy about it too, so. <laughs> Attaboy, Aiden, my man. Um, so, you know, now you got this, this kennel rolling. Um, yep. One thing I'd like to dive into, uh, one of our Instagram followers, He's got a seven-month-old German short hair. He's hunted, if I remember correctly, he, he or maybe he was seven months old during hunting season, and basically just let him be a dog and would point. Sometimes he'd bump him. Sometimes he'd chase him. But, okay. but overall, he was pointing. He asked me, you know, what's my next move? And... Without any more backstory than that, really, my thought is more formal woe training. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on how you go through, you know, getting a dog into your kennel. Let's say it's six months old and doesn't know Jack and yeah. and how you build that obedience and how you build woe and how you get a dog to, to cover a field and, and hold a bird. Absolutely. So um, we'll take two, two approaches to this specific question then. So, because I think they're a little bit different. You're asking what we would do and then what's going to happen with that dog specifically. Because that dog sounds like it's got to start with things, just needs to know where to go from there. But True. Um, I think in essence, it's going to be similar. Um, we train, we teach, excuse me, everything with positive reinforcement. And I mean everything. It's, uh, I don't believe that e-collars can be used in the teach as effectively in the teaching process. I think that they are a fantastic tool in the reinforcement process. So uh, we teach everything with positive reinforcement. Now, when we work a young brand new dog, we start them before they ever go to the field two point birds with positively developing the woe behavior we do that with birds and we have a couple videos out there and I'm sure you guys can link to that or whatever if you if you want to people want to see it whatever it's called called the drill positive pigeons so basically you take a homing pigeon and homing pigeons are a huge part of our program but you take this homing pigeon and you show the dog the homing pigeon 
And then as soon as the dog stops and stands there, there's no commands, there's no cues, there's no instruction. You've got the pigeon, you keep the dog from, that's jumping all over you and excited about this bird, from getting the bird. And when they stop and stand there, boom, you release that pigeon and let them chase it. And within a handful of pigeons, the average dog is running back and stopping and standing there. Then you can incorporate the cue, whoa, and you get a split second. So just like when you start, and I'm sure it's similar with you guys, when you start saying sit, the dog will sit, but it's not gonna sit and stay there forever, right? So it's the same thing with whoa. They have an understanding of what that behavior is then before we ever even go to the field. Now, once we hit the field, we're gonna again teach with positive reinforcement and we're not, we're not stopping them, we're not verbally stopping them, we're not incorporating any of the rest of that. Um, we try and teach with as much of a natural approach to the process as we can. We don't use check cords. There's no collar other than for basic recall just to make sure that they're not running off on us. But we bring out their natural ability by utilizing more or less a wild flushing type bird with the help of electronic launchers. Now we use pigeons, but we want them to act and react to the dog like they're wild birds. You know, wild birds are jumpy. Wild birds are not easily approached by dogs. And so when that dog, young dog is working into a scent cone, we're gonna act, boom, hey, you overpressured that. So they come, for example, crosswind's the easiest way to look at this, but you run the dog in on this launcher, you know where the bird's at, they turn, the bird comes up. So that makes that simulation of you overpressure this bird. Now, that process in almost all pointing dogs and pointing breeds is gonna bring out their natural desire to point and to stand steadier. So we develop all of this pointing till the dog can get to the, till almost every dog will get to the point where you can walk in and flush those birds in front of them before we ever incorporate a cue of woe or actually collar conditioning to woe or any of those other things. All developing naturally by treating those birds and launchers like wild birds. How do you introduce the dog to the launcher? Um, we do the we do an introduction to birds first and you're gonna have to be a little careful if you've got a dog that's hesitant in any of the the initial stage so we play that pigeon game if the dog's standoffish at all you know you've got a dog that's more sensitive and the flush coming out of a launcher could be could startle the dog but if you've got a bold confident dog they're not going to care at all they're going to see the bird and they're going to take off so we don't put any emphasis on them knowing what the launcher is. It's just scent coming out of the grass. Pop so it. The, pop it before they get too close is what you're kind of pop saying. Pop it before they get too close. Right. Yep. Gotcha. Um, now, I want to dive more into that, but then my initial question is like. This specific dog that rode in, he's pointing sometimes, bumping sometimes, right? Well, true. Yeah, I, I guess. Yes. I mean, we can cover that. What are your thoughts on that? Um, it would depend on the type of birds that are using and how the launchers are used. So this is something that we won't dive into much, but I think that launchers, as great a tool as they are, can screw up just as many dogs um, or crappy birds used in training. You know, it's important 
to have quality birds because that wild bird teaches the dog everything. And if we had enough wild birds around, you wouldn't have to have any of this other stuff. Like the, uh, in the olden days, if you will, they just trained on wild birds because they had enough and those teach dogs more than anything else. They went hunting, the dog learned. So in his situation, it depends on exactly what he's doing. Does he have launchers or is he just putting birds out there for the dog? Is the dog seeing the birds that it's bumping? Or is the dog smelling birds and then trying to take them out? You know, I mean, there's, there's more to that to figure out exactly that situation. But your initial comment, I agree with 100%. Woe training would help fix that. Sure. All right. So, I mean, I, I guess I know the answer, and, and you just said it, woe training. Like, you, more formal woe work to build Correct. structure around it. But then there's, like, just to, for instance, for people, like, I have one dog that his chase drive overrides his point drive, right? Like, yeah. he had way too much fun for probably way too long of just chasing. chasing. And then, like, yep. the bird would flush, and he just would haul butt across a field, and he was having the time of his life. So where some pointers, the natural instinct of I bumped that bird I should hold on for a minute you know they the bird like you said the bird teaches them you know flushing that yep. bird and flushing and flushing and flushing they all of a sudden are like wait a minute if I wait right here I'm it, it works better in my favor and their instincts kick on blah 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 uh-huh. but this dog it was the opposite it was like the more he flushed the more he became a flusher not a pointer yeah yep so to me, so I've seen that. Yeah. So to me, and and I'd love your opinion on it is, yeah, he needs more formal woe work and probably, you know, com- corrections once it's understood and the command is understood and the scenarios present themselves. He needs correction to, as if the bird is giving him that correction. Does that make sense? Um, yes, and I would say that I agree with you, and I'll. In a bottom percentile of the dogs, small percentile of the dogs, that's going to be necessary. They've been bred too far toward the versatility game that they do lose some desire to point, or it's maybe not lose, but it's overridden by prey drive. And there are dogs that way. Now, there are a couple tricks that we've come across that kind of help with those dogs. Um, one of which, again, I say we use pigeons a lot in our training, and part of that's because they're we use homing pigeons, and they're a reusable resource, so they don't I can keep popping them, and they don't cost me other than monthly feed bill, so which is pretty minimal. But one thing that I've found with that dog is more birds popping them, and the the one catch in that is if you put the bird in the exact same spot it seems silly and it seems almost counterproductive in a sense for that dog that knows where it's at they'll figure this out but they come in okay so i guess i'm with you so maybe describe that the process of putting it in the same spot yes so putting the bird in the same spot there's two different things that we do this is the first one putting the bird in the same spot um allows the dog to know what's happening and 
it kind of kickstarts that natural desire to point even faster because you bring them back around and then boom, there goes another bird. And then you bring them back around and then boom, there goes another bird. And it always comes out of the exact same place. And you'll get a dog that even with the wind at its back, it'll start like pointing that area. So that is one fix and that's my first go-to. Now, if that doesn't work, the, the exact explanation of why that works, um, I, I don't really know how to explain it because I'm not a dog. All I know is it works. <laughs> I would have uh, to say probably just, it, it's gotta be just the rep- repetitiveness, right? Like pure, pure repetition and stimulating their natural ability is probably it. I mean, it's- Gotcha. How do you- It's in there. So yeah, it's got, it is in there. You're, you're absolutely correct. So now that we've got a dog to this point, right? You've done yep. your positive pigeon method. You've, yep. you've worked them on birds in the launcher and they're standing. Um, when do you overlay collar conditioning on woe? How do you take it from the yard to the field? Or like maybe explain your yard work. Yeah. So, um, and right before that, the next thing with that dog that keeps chasing, um, you play the same game, but you start to, you know, I'm not talking about burning them off, but you just start calling them off of that bird. So they no longer are getting that chase game. So when you start to eliminate that chase too, they start to get more out of the, the pointing aspect of it. And then if all of those things fail, we go right into this woe training that we're starting to talk about. It's just, we'll have to teach them to stand there because they are too too far prey-driven bred, basically. Um, now, when we do formal work, yes, we come out of the field. We do it in the yard, just like you're talking about. Um, we use belly collars. Uh, I think I saw on one of your guys' posts that you do something similar. You do use belly collars as well. Yep. Yeah, and actually, yeah. that's that's kind of a recent um, a, a recent thing for us is yeah. I didn't do that before. I did it with a check cord and then the neck collar, and then I was shown a different way of doing it, and and the speed at which I could do it, and the understanding from the dog going from the night check day. cord to the belly band was like night and day. Yeah. 100%. So that's what we do. We um, we incorporate a little bit of that positive pigeon game again uh, with the belly collar on and we uh, get the dog used to running around so they're comfortable moving with that because it's different and a lot of dogs tighten up and want to stand still for a little bit. Um, and then I find what level the dog is going to work at. So usually with the belly collar it's pretty low but for everybody that's listening to explain how this is so the the e-collar goes around their stomach and then the actual prongs of the collar are in their abdominal wall basically their stomach wall now what that happens when you apply stimulation there it's two things one it's completely separate from the neck which is what we've taught everything else on things like collar condition to sit or to come or to kennel so all movement based things most of the time this is completely separate from that and it allows uh you know almost that baby step between where we're going but collars wrapped around their stomach they feel stimulation there and their their natural response is to move away from that which 
and it almost causes those that stomach muscle area to kind of tighten up just a little bit, which prevents them from wanting to stretch out and move. So it's a natural response is to stop and stand still. That's why it's awesome and it works. So we have a dog that's comfortable with that belly collar and then we find the level that's gonna work for them stem-wise so that it's, they're feeling it, they're responding to it, but it's not uncomfortable to the point of too much or vocalization or any of those things. And then we start throwing those pigeons a little bit. So dogs coming back, they feel the collar and they see that bird. They already know that means to stop. And then they feel the collar, which means to stop. And you can play that as a transitional game to work a dog into stopping. And then the hardest part about woe training, I feel, and you can tell me if you've seen this or not, but the dogs figure out how to stop really fast. And then it gets hard almost to get them moving again because they want to stand there. They learn that's the, the safe thing or that's the easy thing or that's what we're asking at this point in time. So standing there almost becomes all they want to do and these pigeons help getting them moving again so that we can stop them and show them that woe means to stop, woe means to stand there, but you've got to be able to do both. So during this exercise that you just described, are you basically yep. free running them through a field and then what I call bombing them with pigeons? Like they're running, they're running, they are kind of coming towards you and you see them like looking in your general direction and you pitch a pigeon out towards them and that's when you're giving them stimulation or are you popping them from a trap? Um, and this, we're still in the yard and I've got a pigeon in my hand and once they stop, then they're getting the reward of going to chase that bird. So again, we're kind of incorporating how that positive pigeon game works from a positive reinforcement standpoint while being able to overlay negative reinforcement with the e-collar on their stomach. Does that make sense? It, it definitely makes sense. I'm just trying to paint a picture in my yep, head so and, and then for everybody else's head is like, so you're in your yard, in yard. you got yep. the dog on the belly band and, and like I said, they're just free running around or yep. you big enough area they can run around you know maybe 50 yards or so at the most 30 yards gotcha and then when are you throwing the pigeon out so we hold that pigeon up and apply collar at about the same time so they're going to feel that low level of stimulation on their stomach which we've already found the level that works for them and as soon as they stop the collar shuts off so they learn to shut the collar off by stopping and standing there and then we release them okay there goes the pigeon and they get a chase again gotcha when do so you, you can build reps without really breaking the dog down you're just building reps around that belly collar means to stop very good i'm with you on it now so Perfect. now that we've got that yep we transition we we add the cue whoa and then we move into the point where the dog will stop with the cue, and that's by switching your timing. So you say, whoa, and then you apply collar on their belly, and then they learn to stop when you say, whoa, to avoid the collar. That would be everyone, most people's ultimate goal is to dogs to learn how to avoid the collar by complying the first time. And then once they will stop verbally, then we transition from the belly collar back to the neck and once they're solid on the neck, they go back to the field. And that's usually a three session process with us, three training sessions. 
that quick. Holy cow. That's awesome. Um, Not every dog. All right. But now, so now you're going to the field. Now yep. you're working the field with pigeons in a trap again, correct? Yep. Yep. And now they hit that scent cone. They're going to do one of two things. One, they're going to be a good dog and they're going to point. Yep. And and I'm going to paint the picture for everybody. So now the dog's being a good dog. Hits the scent cone. Dog points. Dog yep. stands still like a stone, some may stay, say. <laughs> See how I did that? Yeah, yeah. I like it. So they're standing there on point and they creep in what do you do so ideally before we go to woe training we're going to have a dog that has desire to stand like you're talking about in this situation long enough for us to get into the general vicinity whether that's gun range or all the way to the bird but yes we're not going to make the correction until there's movement so they've stopped on their own they start to creep in we say whoa and apply collar do you pop the pigeon at that point um depending on the situation and the dog so if you've got a dog that's pretty steady we try that to stop them if they'll stand there then we'll start to build wraps like uh, or start to build uh, timing on it so that's when we'll walk around a little bit more and encourage the steadiness then pop the pigeon I don't think but most of the time, by the time we've got two woe training with our dogs, we don't need that pop of the bird to be incorporated with that. Um, that's kind of what we're doing in the beginning stages. So this is more, can we apply woe that we just taught you to the situation to help you stand longer? That's what, that's what the goal would be. Gotcha. All right, now scenario two. Scenario yep. two is it's a bad dog and he hits that scent cone and does absolutely zero point and starts bombing in on the trap. What do you do? Yeah, so this would be the dog that we tried earlier and we tried those options A and B with multiple birds in the same place and trying to take away the fun out of the chase game. And we just gave up and said, hey, we're gonna have to teach you how to point. And the second that dog's hitting the scent cone, we're trying to apply what we've taught them with woe because we're gonna have to teach them how to point. So yes, they hit that. We know they're, they go from hit that scent cone and they pick up speed versus stop. We try and stop them. That's where if we've got a firm enough understanding of woe, we can say woe and stop them and then reward them for stopping so that hopefully we can see that behavior more in the near future. When you said reward them for stopping, is that popping the pigeon and chasing, or is that praise and turning off? What's that off dog the... love? Excuse me. What does that dog love? I mean, honestly, it sounds like chasing, but we yeah. have... but you're almost rewarding. You're still like we... it. All right, so I I'm really asking because I don't know the answer on this one because no. I would do it a little differently because we've just put pressure on the dog yep. like in the yard because and started like not letting him chase as much, right? Yep. So now the dog bombs in on, on the bird, you woe them with stimulation, they stop, 
and you reward them with the chase. That's what I would do. Okay. And then over sessions, you would start calling them off of the chase, correct? Through conditioning, they should learn they're never going to catch the bird, but that takes different amounts for every dog. And ideally, the chase isn't ridiculous. So this dog starts to tear and we stop it. It stops, right? It complies with what we're asking, stops and stands there. So then we reward it with a chase. It takes off, chases 30, 40 yards. We say, boy, come on back around now. You know, you got to chase a little bit for standing. You didn't blow through the collar. You didn't blow through the whole situation. You said, okay, I can stand here. And then we reward you so that hopefully they'll start to put that picture together. How they get what they want is by doing what we're asking. Very good. Do you ever physically put them back or, or no? So I think that's kind of a, a lot of guys do that. And I don't, I personally believe that what they're getting out of that situation is more just physical handling than an actual position. So a lot of guys say, yeah, I take him all the way back to where he should have stopped or whatever. I don't think that that's necessary. I think that if you're going to do it, picking them up, and setting them down in the spot that they eventually stopped or you got to them or whatever is just as effective as dragging them back 20 yards or 30 yards or 10 yards or whatever. Because what you're getting out of that, in my opinion, is just physical handling. Now, we don't do that as much in young dogs, but when we move into steady to wing shot and fall, um, we're gonna incorporate a lot more of that because our goals with that is typically testing and in those testing games, you can't use collars, just like in your um, AKC hunt tests and, and anything other games that you're playing, almost everything you can't use collars in. So you've got to have a dog that understands the other. And so we switch away from collar for everything by that point, and that's where physical handling applies a little bit more. So it's like, you broke, I woed you, then we pick you up, and you know, maybe set you back a foot, but it doesn't really, doesn't really matter to go back to the original spot they smelled or broke from or whatever. Sure. In my opinion. So one thing that I've found, and I'm not a pointer trainer. I've, I, I train pointers, but I would Absolutely. not consider myself a pointer trainer. But one of the things that I've realized and recognized just reading dog behavior is a dog who doesn't fully understand what just happened, physically picking them up and putting them back hurts their, like their demeanor completely crumb, can completely crumble. So the yeah. physical correction of lifting them up and putting them back on woe where they crept from, it can take something out of the dog does that make sense like it's I, i'm yep. i hope it, like the listener understands what i'm saying like you can physically see the dog sulk a little bit like not every dog especially the one that i'm talking about that breaks all the time he could care less but other dogs tend to be like the pointers that i've had just tend to be a little bit softer and so when you pick them up and put them back where they broke from they're like i'm that wasn't good i really and now their point gets a little bit uh, less staunch and less enthusiastic 
So I found yeah. more success with, I find success with the check cord first versus, mm-hmm. you know, you don't use the check cord, which is, you know, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. 100% um, there are. But I found success with that and then the belly band. And then when they fully understand things, you can fine tune it with the physical, pick them up, put them back and, and just reinforce the woe. And I also found that doing it when the bird is still there is worse than when the bird is, like, after the bird's popped. Does that make sense? Yeah, because they put that whole situation together. They start to resent all of it. Right. And the bird. Yep. Right. So once the bird is gone and then you pick them up and put them back, it's not really resenting the bird. It's just a correction. But if you do it when the bird's still there, it can lead to, you know, other issues. Potentially blinking or, yeah, other things Blinking like is that. the word I was looking for. Good good work. I, tip of my tongue yep. and I couldn't come up with it. But blinking... <laughs> so for those of people who don't know what blinking a bird is, the dog knows a bird is there and refuses to point or retrieve or what like in in the retriever world they'll blink a bird they'll hunt the area find the bird and won't pick it up and they'll just continue hunting to like put off the effort that needs to be done which is retrieving in the pointer world it'd be like they find the bird know that it's there and then pretend it's not there and then continue hunting and not point so that's what blinking is it's refusing to do the job at hand and I, I think, and I feel you seem very honest in the situation too. Um, we've all made mistakes. And I think that the average guy out there trying to train his dog thinks that professionals are perfect. Well, we make less mistakes because we've had more opportunities, but we've all made mistakes. I mean, we've all made bad decisions or, but, you know, and that's how we know these things exist like blinking birds and whatever i mean we created it somehow at one point absolutely absolutely yeah obviously nobody's perfect and and like every dog that you touch whether you do a good job or a poor job you're going to learn something about that personality and that skill level of the dog that's going to teach you how to handle the next dog that shows signs of a b and c of what's going on um I think we kind of hammered, you know, whoa, and, and gave someone, you know, the guy who asked us this question, like, a little bit of an understanding. Now, here's one question that, like, you and I are professionals. I have pigeons. You have pigeons. What if he doesn't have pigeons? What do you suggest somebody do with their pointer if they don't have pigeons? Get pigeons. <laughs> Get pigeons. That is what I that is what I suggest. Get pigeons. Get pigeons. Uh, no, to and so to throw a couple things out there with that. One, a lot of guys have got access to some kind of local shooting preserve or a buddy with a farm. If you don't have those things, you're gonna struggle to train a bird dog, period. I mean, because you need grass, you need some place for them to run, you need access to some birds, and those usually come from a bird farmer or a game farm or maybe even another dog trainer and that dog trainer's probably got access to pigeons so um, if you really want to do it there should be some way to get a hold of pigeons or start your own coop 
at somebody's house. It doesn't, it's not that difficult to do, but um, that's, if you don't have those things, then that's when some of the other, the other tactics in there, they're gonna pop out. Like check cordon dogs into birds and helping teach them to stand that way. And, uh, but again, you're, you're, you've got way more handle in the situation. You know, I like a more natural, more natural approach to development. So um, if you don't have access to pigeons, um, there are guys out there that do it with check cords and I have used check cords to do that so infrequently that I would not even be the right person to ask on the appropriate way to do it. So, Gotcha. I gotcha. I mean, I'll give a 30 second spiel on how I've been doing it. Absolutely. Um, that way they go away with some sort of answer and it's right, wrong, or indifferent. I really like your method and I'm going to implement it, you know, and see how I do with it. Um, yeah, try it. See if you like it. Sure. Why not? Right. We're, I'm always learning. Everybody's a sponge in this game. If you stop learning how to, you know, tweak your methodology, you've stopped growing. So I like your method, Absolutely. especially with the positive pigeon. Um, but how, how I've been working it is I first build that drive. So they like birds. They like finding birds. They learn how to hunt cover. We're popping birds in front of them. They're chasing quail or chucker or the pigeons and, and just bombing them with pigeons. And they're, they're chasing and they're smelling birds and they're having fun. I've built some obedience so they come when they're called. But generally speaking, they're just running in a field and finding birds and doing whatever they want to do. Some dogs... Learn how to use their nose. Right. Some dogs, just in that stage, will start to point and you can help refine that. But other dogs just bomb in on them and, you know, whatever. So then I, I used to put them on a table and do like a woe table. I stopped doing that. It's just extra steps and I found it just as easy to do it on ground. And I do, mm-hmm. I take a check cord and I lasso it, like I, I strap it to their neck and then I lasso it around their waist where it's like a half hitch almost. That's what it's called, yep. Oh, sweet. I do know something. <laughs> so you half hitch it around their waist, so when you apply pressure, it's it's a little uncomfortable. And some dogs who maybe have been taught to sit will try and sit, but then that lasso tightens up and it keeps them from sitting and they're standing. And then as soon as they stand still, you, you relax the lead, and I'm just gently saying, whoa, and then I'm petting them. And if they move, I just put a little more tension on that lead and stroke them and pet them and tell them they're a great dog. And then I tap them on the butt, good dog, and, and okay. And I release them on just walking at on the lead and hanging out. I'll say, whoa, I'll lift up on the lead. It cinches down on their belly. It's a little uncomfortable. They stand still. And then I keep doing that repetition. It's just like teaching sit. It's just like teaching come or here. It's just reps. And the more reps you do, then you can say, whoa, and they'll just stand there and you don't need to apply any pressure. And then you can do that with the belly band. And then you can do that walking up to birds in a trap or in a, like a kick cage or something. And you're walking them into the scent cone and applying a little bit of that pressure. They stand still. And, and I've found that to be not as quick as what you were saying with the positive pigeon approach. So I'm going to try that. But it was not very long. I'm a week or two, 10 days maybe, of daily woe work where that 
obedience and the command and all of a sudden you introduce the birds and and it all like melds into one and they'll start standing for birds and then once you apply that belly band you can give a little stimulation if they creep in and then you can pop the pigeon and then let them chase and then once they chase and you call them off of it you can start honing the standing until the flush and then standing for the shot and then once the shot's gone the bird falls and it's a process for sure but I did find the check cord to be a pretty solid way of doing it yeah and here's a little catchphrase we use on occasion the the smaller the steps you take in dog training the faster you get there and I feel like that approach that you've got is going to work for a lot of people and it's it's got those small steps I mean you've got broken down into as many increments as you can and yet you're still getting it done in like a week's time or just over that's that's pretty dang fast for everything that you're talking about so yeah and and it's not perfect by the way in 10 days but but the concept is there and you can start developing other things while you're still honing that is what i've found um but anyways all right let's move on from that we've got a, a few more questions from our followers kevin let it rip big man so we got a good one from uh reed who sent us an email which we appreciate um so Ethan, I'd like your thoughts on this one. He said uh, he's training a short-haired pointer right now that doesn't necessarily care for feathers. So uh, Reed's dog will run over, kind of poke it with his nose, and then doesn't really care to pick it up. Is there anything you do to kind of, like, increase the drive for an actual bird? Uh, How old's the dog? Do we know that? I don't know that. Okay, we'll call it it a six-month-old. Six-month-old. I believe that there is a bit of variance when it comes to retrieving with short hairs. And the best fix for that is breeding. Um, And when you don't have that, the training aspect of things would be to try and find something to meld together with that they do enjoy. So if they're a big fan of bumpers or tennis balls or squeaky toys or something, um, if you can incorporate one feather on that and then two or three and then a wing that you kind of use electrical tape on or something so that they start to get those feathers mixed in with the thing they already like, that's going to be a, that's that's our go-to. If you've got a dog that's a little weird about feathers, we see that on occasion but they love bumpers and I take a wing or a few feathers and electrical tape each end so it's on there real good so 70% of the bumpers exposed and one little piece of it a third or a quarter or whatever is feathers and then you you start layering those wings on there until the whole thing's pretty much feathers and then you move into back into a bird and a lot of times you've got a dog that's a lot more comfortable with feathers after that so yeah, that makes sense. One approach. We One uh, approach. we had a little bit of trouble with my dog, Birdie. Uh, remember when Bird had trouble with pheasants? I do. That's a, that's a setter, right? Uh, the, I have two dogs. So I have a, I have an English setter and I have a golden retriever. And my golden retriever, okay. Bird, um, was originally trained, and her kind of go-to is working with ducks. Um, cool. 
And so that was what she was used to. And the first time we did some pheasant work, it really threw her off. It was like, I know I got to pick this up. I want to pick this up. What do I do? It, you know, it was stone dead. So that it wasn't like it was kicking around and giving her a spur. Nothing exciting. Yeah. But it was it was confusing. And so so I'll jump in real quick. Yeah. So my assessment of what happened to Birdie was a pheasant has a lot of feathers compared to a duck and they're loose right so they were like falling out in her mouth where a duck the the feathers are so dense and tight that feathers aren't you know you're not choking on feathers when you pick a duck up and so her first experience with a pheasant was like she'd pick it up and grab it and she'd get like a mouthful of feathers and spit the bird out and like spit the feathers out and try and regrip and more feathers would come out and um the way we fixed it was a we did quote unquote fun bumpers with the dead pheasant so we made it a positive experience but i also forced her on it so she had been through force fetch so at one point i was like you know what screw this fetch like you have to pick that up honey you know better it's a bird you've been there done that let's go and through the the two methodologies it was fun and you have to, and then it's fun, oh, and you have to, and then, oh, it's fun, oh, it's just fun. And she figured it out, but it was not easy for probably the first two or three pheasants we shot yeah, for the first, her. the first few, it was, it work I mean, own. it was disappointing, to be completely honest, because <laughs> I mean, we get all excited, she's doing great with ducks, I mean, it's it's a positive thing, and then it was like, all right, yeah, let's, let's do some pheasant work, and then it was like, womp, womp. <laughs> but we got there. We got there. We pushed pushed through, and, and I mean, she's a huge fan now. Now, so. Ethan, do you force fetch your dogs? Um, we call it something different, but it's a similar process. Um, so I often refer to it as formal retrieving work, and we take, like all of our training, we take more of a teaching approach to it. That's so but progressive of you. The, yeah. <laughs> so 2019, um, Ethan. um so and and that to all of our training you know i mean i'm teasing i know no 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 but if you can teach and help a dog and you take that approach as a port just even method like verbiage right so you probably heard me say the word cue a few times um we use that even over command even though they're in essence the same thing um a command brings a different mentality in my brain to the process where a force fetch brings a different mentality to the process than um, just formal retrieving work but in essence it's the same thing we teach hold and then fetch and then basically when you come down to it you say you have to now pick this up but um, we try and put as much of a teaching emphasis on it as possible so I dig it yes so I'm sorry I'm sorry for busting your chops no, 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 no. We do formal retrieving work. Absolutely. Do you... Especially with any testing dogs, it's a 100% for us. Yeah. So do you do an ear pinch method? Do you... What's your methodology for for teaching them to turn pressure off and that they have to hold on to it and, like, take it and pick it up? Yep. So with that, um, it's... A little bit of everything. I think that for, to put it into perspective for the average listener here that's just a dog guy, 
I feel that takes the largest learning curve for training in general. So to learn how to, to woe train dogs or to work on steadiness work or to do any of the other aspects of training, I think that the biggest learning curve is at that formal retrieving work um, because almost every dog that I work with throws something different at you. Although the general process is the same, you may have to, there's some finesse that comes with just sheer numbers of those dogs that, um, and being able to read them and everything else that's gonna make somebody with the experience a lot better at it. But we utilize primarily toe hitch with pressure. Gotcha. Um, the reason for that is to, in it's an attempt at removing us directly from the situation where with an ear pinch we are directly attached to that yeah so so i'm going to break down again for the listener who doesn't know the toe hitch the toe hitch is basically a small string that wraps around their ankle and then half hitches around their toe and is attached to either or it, it, like you're either pulling on the string itself or some people use like a dowel with the string attached and you're pulling that string which tightens the half hitch around their toes makes it uncomfortable dog opens their mouth you insert the bumper or fetching like buck item item whatever you're yep. making them fetch and as soon as the said dowel or bumper is in their mouth you release that pressure on the toes and praise them. So it's black and pressure white. Pressure on, pressure off. Exactly. It's black and white. Uncomfortable, comfortable, and praise. Black and white. Um, so I've actually never toe-hitched a dog. I've seen it done. I've just never done it. I'm comfortable mm-hmm. and understand ear pinch. Like like you said, finesse. I've done it hundreds of times. Th- yeah. I mean, in, in hundreds of dogs, and therefore I've done it thousands of times. And you can read their body language, and I know I'm just comfortable with my method. And so, 100%. you know, to Ethan's point, it's just a different method, and the dogs understand it. Now, I'll, I'll devil's advocate or advocate or whatever it is. I don't know why I couldn't come up with that. But, like, I actually like having that dog think that it's coming from me. And maybe that's a little twisted because I like Ethan's idea of it removes us. They're turning the pressure off. We're a little bit more hands off. And therefore, the dog is figuring it out by being a dog. I like the dog to have a little ounce of like, I know how to turn this off. And Bob's going to make me do it if I don't. Yeah. And then I've also, I've also found it a little easier when I go to ground if you need to grab the ear because I don't, I really don't understand if if the dog doesn't do it and they're not collar conditioned to it, how do you get them to do it without the toe hitch on? Yeah. So we don't leave the, we do everything on the table. A lot of people, there's some mixed opinions on whether or not you need a table or not. And I always explain it to people is most of the time I'm doing multiple of them, and the table is primarily to save my back so that I can stand versus bend over, or sit on a bucket or something like that. But. Um, we don't leave the table until they're collar conditioned to fetch. So the toe hitch is a, a stepping stone to our ultimate goal of collar conditioning. So Bingo. All right, that makes a ton of sense. 
So you're finishing everything, including the collar conditioning, on the table, and then when you go to the ground, the dog understands how to turn the pressure off from the collar. Yep. That makes sense. And I don't know if you've seen this, but it seems it, it seems like to me that every stage of that process almost has to be retaught. So, and what I mean by that is we teach it on the table, and the second we move to the ground, they act as if they've never done any of it before. And you have to reteach it. Now, it doesn't take the same weeks or whatever of training. It takes a session or a few reps or whatever, but they act like, man, I've never done this before. 100%. And then you break it down in the little baby steps, and then when we go outside, that's another step, and then, again, they act like, I've never done this before, because you've never done it outside. Well, then we go to the field, and they try that again. But it takes less and less reps to work through all of that, but it's almost like there's a huge disconnect with each individual step that you bring that dog through. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's, it seems to... It seems to always happen with the dogs I'm working with. I don't know. No, dude, you're 100% on. every. So every step of force fetch, from hold to ear pinch or toe hitch to collar conditioning to taking it to the ground and doing walking fetch, um, yep. there is a point where they're like, this is different. What are you asking of me? And then you show them and you show them and you show them, and they're, they're, they figure it out, but you're right. Every time you take the next step, there's a hiccup and you work through that mm -hmm. hiccup and then there's smooth sailing for five or six sessions and then you move to the next step and there's a hiccup until they figure out mm -hmm. that hiccup and you move through that but yeah every every time they that's Even how it to is the extent of uh i've got a bumper let's say on the on the trainer side of this table let's say the table's like 24 to 30 inches wide or whatever you put the bumper on your side of the table meaning close to the edge, the outside edge, and then you put the bumper in the middle of the table, and then you put the bumper on the left side of the table. That that almost takes a transition. Like the bumper is visible on the on the outside of the table and it disappears on the on the inside part of the table. Even though it's six inches away or ten inches away. So <laughs> Aiden. Aiden doesn't like force fetch. Yeah, he's uh he's found a water bottle that he's playing with oh nice he's fired up so yep. yeah so i mean i'm i i agree with you on that point i mean i don't i don't feel like i need to beat the dead horse because it's just it's the same point as anything you kind of switch up on them and they've got to figure out that's all they're doing they're trying to figure it out and they act like they don't know what to do and then all of a sudden it works and they're like oh that was it okay i got it bam got bam it. bam yep and if they don't act like they got it, you got to help them get it so they learn like that, that that's word. how they turn the pressure off. And then yep. you praise them. I like that word. So I'm actually, not to self-promote here, my bad, but I did an Instagram live today with a dog named Lincoln. I saw that. Yeah, and I'm going to do it through his whole process. And I probably should do cool. it in a more formal way that doesn't disappear after 24 hours. But this is such a question that, I mean, I get it every day on my dog drops the bumper 10 yards away from me my dog won't pick up a duck my dog won't do this or that or whatever and generally speaking if you force fetch the dog the dog's not going to do those things and there no. there's a lot of negative connotation like i got the same question with the guy who had the gsp that i just asked you has a lab that drops the bumper and he said he's soft well 
that's okay. Like, you don't have to be hard on them. Just because it's called force no. fetch doesn't mean you have to be hard on a dog. And that's kind of to your point, and I was busting your chops, like, it's a trained retrieve. I'm training them how to retrieve, how to pick something up and p- bring it back to me and hang on to it. But you're also, force fetch is also teaching a dog how to learn. So they're learning how to turn pressure off and overcome an obstacle and have success. So it, it creates confidence. It creates boldness. It, create, it, it shouldn't be a negative at all if you've done it properly. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had dogs go sour on me, but then once they figure it out, they're back up. Yeah, and they end up coming through stronger on the other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. All right, let's move on to question, I don't know, probably 18, but go ahead, Kevin, what you got? Uh, I don't remember who this one came through, so my bad on that one, but we had uh, how to teach a dog running forward, uh, running running patterns without looping behind. Okay. I think I know what he's asking. I don't know this question. Improperly. He did. It's okay. (laughs) So my guess is this pointer, the guy wants him to work the field in front of him and quarter in front of him, but his dog continuously like will quarter, 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 and probably loop behind him and hunt behind Ah. him and then come back forward. How do you get, build confidence on hunting in front of you so it kind of depends on um, what exactly is happening and there's different things so if he's got a young dog that lacks the confidence like what you said um, he could be over hunting the dog by walking too fast and that doesn't allow the dog to get out there and search and do its thing and figure out because it's it's being over hunted by the handler and can you describe uh, that? I don't mean to interrupt you, but can you describe that? Because I follow you, but m- yeah, maybe. overwalk. So you've got a young dog, and let's say that dog averages 10 to 15 yards ahead of you because it's just a little puppy with short legs, and you're like death marching through this field, walking as fast as you can, going, we need to hunt harder. Well, the puppy spends all this time trying to hunt but can't keep up with you, so it ends up behind you, and that's more our fault in that situation than the puppies. Um, Then there's another situation where if this dog's getting lost or not paying attention to you and it's running around and just willy-nilly circling around and that's that's a whole different issue. So it kind of depends on which. The young puppy, I would say um, build confidence with another dog and some age and just slow your pace down. The other dog's not paying attention. we got to work with some cooperation usually and some obedience issues with that just in a sense of it's not paying attention to us as as a team member out there to go hunting with so, so what would you tell him to do because i'm going to err on the side that it's it the dogs are just running around not paying attention to where the handler is would be my guess running around willingly so with that what we're going to actually do a lot of times is we either cor- incorporate free runs walking or off of a four-wheeler where we change direction without them without necessarily coaching them or paying attention to them in a sense that the dogs may be off to our right well we turn and go the opposite direction that they are in a sense of trying to lose them and then they kind of get this oh crap where's dad at i need to pay more attention that's the average dog's mentality to that situation i got lost 
I need to pay more attention. And then you, the more you do that, the more they start focusing on where you're going and that's gonna keep them hunting with you and then ultimately hunting to the front. Do you use a command um, to like get ahead or? Hunt them up or something like that? Yeah, like the field trial guy I, I worked with this winter, uh -huh. he'd, he'd be like, I mean, he was awesome, man. So I'm not ball busting. He'd be like, get hit, hit now, yeah. get a hit now. To him. And he's just like, he's <laughs> he called it the bird dog sing. And he'd sing yeah. to that dog to like build his confidence and, and, and say, get ahead. And that dog yep. would haul ass ahead. And um, can I get it one more time? Get ahead now, head now, get ahead. <laughs> it's probably going to blow Yo out people's eardrums. Hip, yeah, exactly. So, like, he used that command if the dog was hunting too close or looped behind us, he would sing that song to get him driving forward. I've heard it done with whistles too, like a big rolling whistle. You know, I can't do a rolling whistle with come my on, mom, I just sang, you gotta try. <laughs> Weep. But uh, send them on out with that whistle. <laughs> send them on out with that whistle. I've seen guys do that too. But um, it's that's really a big field trial thing. Um, I personally don't like to make as much noise when we're hunting wild birds and stuff. I I'm, I do believe that it does detract, or not detract, but uh, I mean, birds are weary to hunters and everything else. So I try and keep as quiet as possible because we're more based around the hunting dog and the hunting companion than actual trials but gotcha. you've got to talk to those trial dogs so that they know where you're at because there's you know they're out ahead usually a lot further than what the average hunting dog is so that you there's a lot more talking to them or singing to them as it's commonly referred to yeah for sure but but i still think like with andy andy can do that sometimes and and i i started telling her like get ahead get ahead you know if i'm running and roading uh -huh. her with the four-wheeler every time she'd barrel by me I'd be like, good dog, get ahead. And just try and build reps on get ahead means hunt in front of me, you're doing a good job, good girl. You know, and if she'd loop back, I'd be like, no, let's go, get ahead, get ahead. And then she'd barrel by me, good dog, get ahead. I mean, that's you how know, I would do it. You're just. Uh, and honestly, now that you say that, I, I guess in an unknown to me i don't do it as much with training dogs because it, it doesn't seem like it's often needed as much per se um just how they develop but when we do confidence building stuff i said to run with another dog if you can find that you know a dog that's got confidence that pup can learn a lot or the other dog even can learn a lot from a dog that does know what they're doing um I do a lot more of that off of a, an ATV like you're talking, and it'll be like just pushing them out with, hey, 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 we're over here, look, we're going this way. Got and it. then they try and get they try and get to the front because it's more of a race. Right. They're not hunting as much as they're just running, and that running is what teaches a better hunting pattern or a better hunting. Yeah, good, good. What else you got, Kev? Yeah, we got we got our last one uh, for now, I suppose. But we got our last one. Uh, this guy has pigeons and does some upland work with his dog. His dog's a flusher, and he does not have a remote launcher. But was wondering if you had any ideas on how he could run some drills alone. Uh huh. 
uh, without a remote launcher, but he does have pigeons. Using pigeons. Um, that's going to be tough. Yeah. That's what I, t- I sent him a message back. I'm like, bro, just get buck up and get a yeah. remote launcher. You know, spend three, $400 and get two electronics and, and or two wingers and electronics and you know you'll be off and running i also and and i'd like your opinion on this for for flushing dogs for teaching quartering i'll put like little orange ribbon and then i'll put a dead duck at that orange ribbon and then i'll walk at an angle like you're quartering you know 75 80 yards on the other side of the field with another orange ribbon and a dead duck and then again comb all the way back to the other side of the field orange ribbon and a dead duck so I can help the dog learn to move with me and staying within range. What do you, is that something that you would suggest? And, and what, or is there anything else you do? Man, that's really cool. Um, I have spent a majority of my training career hiding from ribbons in the field because of with pointing dogs, it, it creates big issues. Um, in the sense that if you've got a little orange ribbon marking where your bird's at, the dogs pick up on those ribbons, just like what you're talking about, which you're developing quartering skills with, um, but then they start pointing the ribbon, not necessarily the scent of the bird, and um, we had a situation with that that I, I went out and hunted with a guy, or trained with some guys, and they had been marking with, like, survey flags. They marked all of their launchers out, and I said, hey, you know, my opinion, if you want it, um, would be to get rid of those flags. And they said, oh, why? We need to know where the launchers are. And I said, well, the dogs can cue off those flags really easy. And they said, nah, no, they don't. So I took a flag and stuck it out in the field. The dog ran up and pointed it. Um, <laughs> so with the pointing dogs, we try and avoid those. But that's a really cool idea with flushing dogs that would, would be a great way to teach quartering. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I so I, I 100% agree with you. I do know dogs and train with buddies who who use, you know, those flagging, whatever they're called, uh, surveyor's tape flags, mm-hmm. and 100% his dogs know what those are. Yep. And so now we have to hide them a little bit better and move them, like, 30 yards away, but uh-huh. they're in line with where it is, so you kind of like, all right, between this bush and 50 yards from that ribbon is where the launcher is, and you kind of... you use. You, you You're switch. using dog trail launchers, right? Yep. Don't they have a beeper on them? Yeah, but then the dog, like, I mean, they all cue in on that beep after a while. Well, they do if you if you overuse it. That's true as well. I mean, it's... It's I'm all about saying, keeping them on their toes, really. This is very true. They need to not know where it's at, and you need to know where it's at is the ultimate, the ultimate goal that we're trying to come up with a way to do. Exactly. So, listen... I'm kind of a dummy, so I always lose where I put these things. So, <laughs> I swear to God, it's like every time. Like, where did I hide that chucker? That bush looks like the same bush I put it under, but it's not there. And then 10 yards away, the bush that looks just like it is where the chucker is. So yeah. I, I have to find out ways to, like, really put in my brain, this is 20 yards away from where I hid that thing. Um, uh-huh you know wind direction is here and then like reiterate it in my head all right it's 20 yards away wind direction is here boom and 
you know, that way you're not overusing flagging tape. You're not overusing the surveyor uh, pins. Um, but, but yeah, man, I, I totally am a numb nut about that. I forget every time. No, I, I pick the, the major land markers, like what you're talking about and go, okay, it's next to this big group of purple flowers. Then you get out there and there's freaking purple flowers everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you completely, but I try and pick, you know, Hey, we've got this, like you're talking, it's the same thing. Every, I mean. We got a big bush over here. We've got it between the big bush and the little bush. Those are the only bushes in the field, so we should be all right. That's right. All right, Ethan, we're rolling into an hour and twenty minutes, big man. And I know you got little late in there, and uh, it's got to be time for his bedtime. Um, here's the deal: you got a lot of phenomenal things coming up in the future, and I would like people to hear about it because you got a ton of great information awesome content tell them where they can find you and what you got coming down the pipes well i can do that i also want to say thanks again for having us on the having me on the podcast this is a lot of fun you guys are awesome and um as for things that we've got upcoming one of the coolest things we've got this summer we're starting a series and you're going to get the opportunity to see how we apply our training tactics to a young lab pup we're going to start that here at the end of the month and I'll probably be reaching out to you with some, hey, where do we go from here on starting some hand signals and lining drills and everything as this pup gets older. But throughout this series, we're going to do live videos on Facebook. Um, and then we put a finished kind of more higher quality, good audio, a little bit of editing, but pretty much the same feel to the one take training session so you can see where we struggled how we worked through it um, that's going to be on youtube and igtv and then we'll share that again to facebook so instagram standing stone kennel at standing stone kennels our facebook page and then also youtube we've got a standing stone kennels page there as well um, and during this series we're going to be doing a lot of great giveaways including a year supply of dog food uh, we're going to be giving away some ammo with Kent and their new uh, Fast Steel 2.0, Momarsh, Caranda beds, climb platforms, bumpers, DT systems, e-collars. Um, the list goes on. It's thousands of dollars worth of great stuff for everybody that's watching. We'll always tell you how to enter, how to win, but that will be starting right here around the 1st of July when we go pick up this pub so good for you so standing stone kennels on instagram facebook and youtube also yep. um do you have any litters coming up if people want to get in touch with you about you know getting a german short hair from your lines you know i'm assuming they just would contact you through those you know avenues but you know anything coming down the pipes for that um, they can for sure. We we don't have anything available for about the next year, year and a half. But um, we are we're pretty fortunate that way. We've got a little bit of a list. But if it's something that you're looking for something down the road, definitely don't hesitate to reach out. Very good, cool man. Listen, Ethan, awesome time. I love chatting with you. I love that we have very similar styles, but also can tweak each other in different ways it's it's always good to learn always being a sponge and i think if 
all our listeners take something away from our podcast, you know, with every trainer that we talk to is everybody does it similar, but everybody has little tips and tricks that make your job as a uh, amateur trainer or pro trainer a little bit easier. So loved listening to it, man. I'm, I'm going to listen to it on my ride to the training grounds tomorrow. I can promise you that. So awesome. Do me a favor again, follow Ethan at standing stone kennels. Ethan, thank you for your time tonight, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you guys. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash lone duck golfers. If you enjoy the show and want to want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you hey listeners nick larson here host of the bird shop podcast as fans of this show you may be interested in the conversations on the bird shop podcast where we discuss all things upland hunting from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns bird dogs and gear used to pursue them whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more i interview a wide range of guests each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share if you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation please consider subscribing to the bird shop podcast today Thank you.